In the first two seasons of our podcast, I chatted with Kate Leone, a journalist, single mom, and world traveler. Kate had never taken a self-defense course before, and we figured her questions were probably your questions too. So if you've been following along all along, thanks for listening. You can keep up with Kate on her podcast at RestoriaTherapy.com. For this season, it seemed like a good time to change things up a bit. The new theme song you're hearing, by the way, is an excerpt from a song called Icarus Wish by Berlin punk trio Dead Sentries, who also happen to be my neighbors, and who are generously letting me use this track, which you can also find on Bandcamp. Anyway, I thought it was time to head out into the world, virtually speaking, and talk to other women and men in the universe of self-defense, self-empowerment, and martial arts. I'm talking to old friends, new acquaintances, and complete strangers. Yes, I do talk to strangers, because I can defend myself. But I might hang up on them, too. We'll see. So, if you've stuck with us so far, keep listening, keep learning, keep laughing. You never know who we're going to talk to next. Well, I do. We are actually at the final two episodes of season three, and what special episodes they are. I'm interviewing my teacher, Chadwick Minge. In this first of a two-part series, Chad takes us through his history of martial arts. And let me just prep you on this. He's turning 80 soon, still training, but takes us all the way back to the 1960s and his very first martial arts class in boot camp in the U.S. Army, where he served in the 82nd Airborne with an attachment to the 7th Special Forces Group as senior medical specialist. Chad has been living martial arts for over 60 years as a student, as a practitioner, as a teacher. This episode takes us up to the moment he discovers Ninpo Taijutsu, or ninjutsu. But it also takes us through his journey as a soldier, an expat, a martial artist, a man. He shares with us what he's been seeking and what he's found. So there are some special sensei teachings involved here. Pay attention. And welcome to episode 55 of the Pretty Deadly Podcast. Okay. What's happening with your eyebrows? I, uh, You've got some like Fu Manchu thing going on there. It, yeah, it's been a little while since I've trimmed them, that's all. Otherwise, <laughs> they could, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use them for a comb over, you think. Yeah, all right, good idea. Very and then I'm going to dye them orange. Uh-huh. Oh. Take over the, and take over the world. Excellent. Okay. I'm right behind you on that one. Yeah. You look good. You, you uh, yeah. change your hair color. This is my natural hair color. I'm starting to get some grays. Um, I, you can't really see them. You have to look really closely, but I'm kind of excited about it. I'm thinking I thought maybe you were a little blonder than that. This is kind of the winter color. The winter color, yeah. Uh-huh. Looks like it's got some red in it. You know what? It's capybara hair. I forgot that this is my natural hair. That so capybara, the giant Brazilian rats. Uh-huh. So their hair, their fur, actually contains every single hair color of all mammals. So it's not one color; it's like all these different colors. And there, I don't, I don't, I think I've maybe got like a couple of strawberry blondes, but. Yeah, my hair actually does the same in the winter. It's weird. So Believe it's like capybara hair. When I had hair, it uh, was it had everything, it ran everything. I started out blonde, and it ended up with reds, and I had uh, all different colors in it. So, do you do, have you ever thought about the fact that when you had hair, it was in the last century? 
Yeah, 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 no, I tried not. <laughs> when you put it that way, I really try not to think of that. But it's true, um, you know. So, if you if you don't want this podcast to go sideways, don't get me started. No, 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 I won't. Um, all right, so I'm just gonna simply thank you for being here, and then we'll just start talking. Okay. Yeah. Good. Uh-huh. All right. Yeah. I'll wait until you're done drinking. Okay, good. I'm finished drinking. All right, great. <laughs> Me too. Not really. I'm having champagne tomorrow. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Sensei. It's a pleasure. I appreciate it. Um, I know it's morning. It's not too early, right? It's 10 o'clock. We're all the yes, room. it's actually getting quite late in the day in Louisiana. Almost time, for, almost time for a mint julep. Ooh, I'll be right over. You got me there. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your experience in martial arts in general, um, and NIMPO in particular, because I don't personally know anyone who has been studying and practicing and living with a martial art as long as you have. And it's such a big part of your life. I'm curious to know what that's like, what that feels like. What is it like to be you? <laughs> so, What's it like to be me? It depends on the day and, um, and the circumstances. But aside from that... Um, let's start with um, how you got started. You, did you, were you training martial arts when you were in the Army? Yeah, actually, it was my introduction. I went to the Army when I was 17. And it started out, of course, everybody goes through the hand-to-hand combat thing. Started out with uh, just the hand-to-hand combat, which is basically in those days jujitsu, Japanese jujitsu. Uh, this was 1960. The instructor of hand-to-hand combat had been in the Bataan Death March um, during World War II and survived it. And he had, uh, previous to that, um, trained in uh, Okinawan karate, um, Shotokan. And he was ranked in Japan. He was part of the occupation forces. And uh, he continued his ranking uh, old school. And he was the instructor for our, um, our unit in the Airborne. I ended up working as his assistant uh, for a while, assistant instructor. Anyway, growing up in the 50s in the middle class America, rather sheltered by a lot of standards, I found out later. You know, the idea of being able to defend yourself and being a a badass, as they said, um, I guess was intriguing to a 17-year-old. So that's how I started. Being that age, I guess, and everything else, and the issues one has, um, it was a good outlet. You get rid of a lot of frustrations and everything else. But So anyway, I studied that. Then I studied a bit of Okinawan karate, uh, the Shotokan with him. He got out of the service. What, uh, do, you rem- do you remember his name? Yeah, well... His name was Sergeant Smith. We only call him Smitty. Sergeant um, Smith. <laughs> That's like the yeah. Would, would you believe Sergeant Smith? Sergeant Smith. Funny thing was, this was 1960, so we're talking 15 years after the end of the war, mm-hmm. and he still looked like he was on the Bataan Death March. I mean, right. he was he was as thin as a rail, and and but is somebody you didn't want to ever fool with. I left the service, came back to the States. It was the middle of the, uh, the started, not the middle, but it started into the beginnings of the Vietnam 
uh, major conflict and um, it wasn't a good time for veterans to be in the States, or at least I didn't feel it. I felt out of place. So I left, um, left the States, went overseas, went, uh, did university, got involved in some stuff, continued on uh, staying overseas, doing... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Could you just be more vague? Because <laughs> doing some. Um, Where did you go to university? Uh, university of America is Mexico City. Okay, great. You got involved in some stuff. Where? Well, it was also, as I said, it was. It was. We're now in the mid '60s. There's a lot of violent opposition to the war, mm-hmm. um, overseas as well as, I mean, uh, you know, in, in different places. Uh, the 60s through Latin America was very, uh, in, a, in, a, in a lot of upheaval. A lot of the countries were fighting insurgents. Um, it was a time that was very tumultuous mm-hmm. uh, from a social and political standpoint, all through Latin America into the United States. Okay. Um, so there was, a, there was a lot of activity um, outside of the United States in Latin America and overseas also, but Latin America primarily. I worked in security a bit and um, worked as a consultant to different agencies uh, outside, worked as a liaison occasionally, uh, just kind of a troubleshooter. Um, At the same time, leading a regular, perfectly normal life of having a couple businesses. uh, And uh, I spent time in Latin America, and then went to Europe, came back to the States, had an accident, took me out, and basically was pronounced dead. Are you comfortable talking about what the accident was? Uh, I was I was hit by a five-ton logging truck doing 87 miles an hour. Oh, what were you, what, were you in a car or on your yeah, feet? Yeah, I was in a or? car. I was, okay. leaving, I was leaving work. I was at the time working as uh, at the Delta Regional Primate Center, which was a research uh, center. With monkeys? Hmm? With monkeys? I'm sorry? With monkeys? With subhuman primates, yes. Monkeys. And uh, this was back in 65. Uh, They said I'd never walk again without crutches or a cane. I was obstinate and didn't know any better, so I said to hell with you. And you walked out. out When I finally got out of the plaster, I took off and I went to Europe lived in Europe for a couple of years uh, and got involved with some people over there. One thing led to another, I ended up back in, in Latin America. All in all, I was gone for 17 years. Okay. And uh, during that time, I would uh, study different arts because I always seemed to be able to clear my head when I was training. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also beneficial to what it, to my travels. Were you mostly sticking with Japanese arts or were you moving around? Uh, prim- primarily. No, I, I did. I did. Um, yeah, I, primarily. Um, I guess it were Japanese arts. Um, now that I think about it, uh, judo, jujitsu, uh, karate. I did some eclectic type of arts. Um, got familiar with a few others um, that weren't Japanese. I did, I did study uh, kung fu. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese art, but that was much later after I got to Los Angeles. Anyway, it was just something that, aside from being very practical in my mm-hmm. situation, it felt good. I mean, it it, it helped me. I'm not getting too deep into things. Let's just say that 
it helped me be a better person. Mm -hmm. um, I, we all have issues and I, I had mine. And um, when a person is dealing with demons, so to speak, they don't necessarily understand them. So they can look whenever they can find a way to, to uh, vent the demons from one or avoid them. They do, you know. Right, right, right. So you made it back to um, Latin America mm -hmm. after 17 years overseas. 17 years was including um, Latin America. I finally decided to leave the expat life. I guess I got tired of, I get tired of always kind of having to be on guard or be, mm -hmm. yeah, be guarded. Mm -hmm. Everything, everything was always about, at least my life was not the expat life, but my life was involved with too many things. And it really boiled down to, you did favors for people, people owed you, uh, it's how you survived. I think that's kind of still true for expats. I mean, it's true, it, rather it's not true if you're moved over to another country with your job, you know? Yeah, yeah it's different. But, but if, you, if you choose to become an expat and you head off to another country with no network and no job waiting for you, I think that's, that's kind of how it is. You cobble together a life as best you can. And as you go along, you also start to, you start to learn where people may take advantage of you because you don't know the local customs. Sometimes you don't know the language well enough, et cetera. So I think it's, it's still true that you kind of live a bit on your guard. You know, you get involved in a lot of things just to make, just to get by because you can't enter the main system. You know, you've, you've left the system that you grew up in behind you don't really fit into the new system and there's no network for you. And so you're kind of permanently out of place and out of time, you know, which gets exhausting. Yeah, that's that. And then add on top of that. Um, Whatever you were doing. And, you know, I had a couple of businesses uh, that I was involved in import export and I had a language Institute and uh, different things. But anyway, um, it was, it was a life that was interesting and fun and everything else like that. I was in my 30s, get my late 30s, and I, I, I just decided I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing this. Um, mm -hmm. And so I just thought I'd come back to the United States and <laughs> the illusions that one has um, fit into a, a normal middle class life. Mm -hmm. Little did I realize that the middle class was dying. Uh, it's on the beginning of its decline in the United States. But I, I got um, a job offer in Los Angeles, went to Los Angeles. Um, the job offer I didn't accept, um, didn't pan out, we'll just say. So did one thing after another, you know, trying to, one, trying to survive, as you say. And I, within a year's time, I was going nuts. Mm-hmm. And um, during that year, I'd also help make ends meet. Every once in a while, I'd go back down to Latin America. I'd get a call, and I'd go back down and do some work and then come back up. But I was feeling very discombobulated. And so I went out, looked for martial arts places to start studying, uh, just to help center me, clear my head again. Right. Uh, I wandered around from school to school, and it was all... You know, the, the fun and games and the sports and the 
point that I, I just, I'm, I'm sorry. And then I happened to stumble on something one morning, a gentleman who was teaching a class in a school and I stood and watched and it was very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was real. And it turned out, long story short, turned out he was a, he was a uh, captain the special forces who was on temporary assignment at UCLA doing a language thing or something. So he was teaching this school and what he was teaching was what I had learned back in the army. Okay. So I started training there because now I'm dealing with something that's real. Uh, he ended up leaving uh, after his time at UCLA was finished about six months later. And I continued for a while and then um, had a bit of a conflict with the, the owner of the school. And so I left and just started training on my own. Well, I had been teaching classes at that school in the mornings and I left and uh, I didn't tell anybody I was going. I just left. My first student there, a guy by the name of Terry, found me back again. He started training my backyard with me and then others found me and then I, they started training the backyard. And then I got um, a friend of mine through whom I had met, an Israeli. We had a lot of similarities in our backgrounds. And uh, he had trained with Bunjin Khan in um, Israel. What was his name? His name? Uri Tauber. Okay. And he trained with uh, Doron Navon. Mm -hmm. He started teaching me, you know, um, it was my first real intro to the Japanese version of Nimpo Taijutsu. Anyway, so he called um, Doron in Israel and... Doron contacted Japan and Atsumi Sensei and got back a note to contact an individual, another Israeli in, um, who had just recently uh, moved to Los Angeles from Japan, named was Sabara then asked to train with him. Mm-hmm. And so I interviewed with him. He, wasn't, he had a small, small group uh, himself and three other Israelis that were just a training group, but he accepted me. Is literally training in his apartment. He accepted me because of the request uh, from Japan. So it was myself and three other Israelis. And we trained. And then things in Japan um, split up. You mean between Hatsumi and Tanamura? Tanamura Sensei, yes. I'm interrupting this interview to quickly brief our non-ninjutsu listeners on the history of modern-day ninjutsu. If you heard Miwa's interview in the previous episode, you'll know that ninjutsu, also called Nimpo Taijutsu, is a relatively new term in Japan. The main international federation is called the Bunjinkan, and it's led by the recognized world grandmaster of ninjutsu, Sensei Masako Hatsumi. Hatsumi's first shihan, sort of his star pupil and lead instructor, is named Sensei Shoto Tanamura. Sometime in the 1980s, Tanamura split from Hatsumi and formed his own ninjutsu federation, the Genbukan, which caused all kinds of political fallout. If this all sounds kind of like Cobra Kai Karate Kid nonsense, it is. And for the record, Sensei Minj and his schools, which includes mine here in Berlin, are not members of either. Now, back to our interview. My teacher, Sarai, had been a uh, direct student of Tanamura Sensei's. Mm-hmm. And when the split came, I was, you know, what do I do? So I talked to another friend of mine who had also studied in Israeli, who studied in uh, Japan. Uh, his name was Gabby. And he went ahead and I'll never forget. He said, 
let the gods on Mount Olympus do what the gods do. <laughs> you just stick with your teacher. When you get to that point when you're able to decide what to do further, then you'll know what to do. Mm-hmm. So I did. So you stayed with the group <laughs> that followed Tanamura. Yes, exactly. And his new organization was called Gimbuka. Mm-hmm. There was bad blood between Bunjinkan and Gimbuka. Bunjinkan did not like Gimbuka, and Gimbuka was very, very small. Uh, we had nobody in Japan mm-hmm. or United States, right? Mm-hmm. Then there was a, um, a ninja summit, which was put on by Bunjinkan in Ohio. Mm-hmm. I think it was the second world ninja summit or something like that. And Hatsumi Sensei was supposed to be the, the main grandmaster and attraction there. Uh, it seems at the last moment he backed out for whatever reason. There were like 400 and something um, Bunjinkan people. Mm-hmm. Well, the organizer of, her, of the event who had been a, a companion and uh, fellow policeman with uh, Tanamoto Sensei. And so he called Tanamoto Sensei and asked him if he would be the a grandmaster from Japan. And he agreed to it. Before this even happened, uh, they were going to send a representative of Gimbukan to give a class instruction. And Sabar slated me to go and represent. Then Tanamura decided to to come, and that was, ah, the burden wasn't on me to be there as the representative. (laughs) Um, um, do Do you remember what year this was about? 1986, I think. Okay. Ooh, when um, I graduated high school. Pardon? Nothing. Nothing. Keep going. <laughs> um, then I was uh, asked, uh, not asked, I was appointed myself and my number one, which was Terry. He and I were going to be Tanamura Sensei's bodyguards and entourage for the week that he was here. Because mm-hmm. as I said at the time, there were real bad blood uh, from Gimbukan towards uh, Bunjikan. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we went to Ohio. That's where I met Tanamoto Sensei personally for the first time. And uh, Terry and I were his assistants. And after the uh, seminar, he went ahead and he called, called me in. And he invited me to be his personal student in Japan. And he did the same thing with Terry. So Terry and I decided we were going to quit whatever we were doing, pool our money, and go to Japan which we did. And um, lived in Japan and just did nothing but train. What do you think was making you do that? Like, what about, I mean, you already talked about how martial arts in general kind of helped you clear your head and helped you center yourself. So it's, it was always something you sought out no matter where you were, or what you were, what you were getting up to in your mysterious wanderings around the earth. But what was it about Nimpo in ninjutsu that inspired you so much or motivated you so much to literally quit whatever you were doing and pull your money and go to Japan? To completely delve into that, I would, I would probably have to go through complete psychoanalysis, but I, well, there, there were a couple things and I used to, I'm sure you've heard it, um, having been my student for quite a while. Hmm. There was something that always bothered me about my training before. And that was, I use this comparison. If I had a drunk take a swing at me in a bar, um, or my best friend takes a swing at me because he finds out I took his girlfriend out behind his back, Mm -hmm. 
where a guy comes out of an alley and takes a swing at me, all three were handled exactly the same. Mm -hmm. uh, my reaction in defending myself would be exactly the same. In the other arts that you were studying? In the, yes. And I mean, that's all I knew. It was, and to me, that always bothered me because one, the drunk doesn't, he's a drunk. Yes, he can hurt me, but he's a drunk. Right. And he's at a disadvantage and he's not completely within his faculties and he doesn't deserve to get taken out. Right. Taken down, yes, but not taken out. Mm -hmm. My buddy has every right in the world to be angry with me and okay, so he leaves his frustration. Whether it's right or wrong, uh, physically, he takes a punch at me. I should probably stand there and take the punch, you know, and then mm -hmm. calm it down. But no, he gets trashed, doesn't deserve it. The guy coming out of the alley, his intentions are entirely different. Right. He's deserving of the response that he gets. Mm -hmm. When I started studying, and, and as I alluded earlier, I. I have my issues. I had my issues. I used to call it the beast. Mm -hmm. um, I would go from perfectly smiling individual to the Hulk, uh, something like that. Yeah. Uh -huh. And not to be dramatic, but it's just, it wasn't nice. Uh, I mean, it was just, mm -hmm. and that, you know, that, that, that goes into different things. But so when I started studying, and I, it wasn't my purpose for me. When I started studying, it was just to acquire more knowledge and more, repertoire so I could do my thing again. Right. But it changed me. Mm -hmm. And I found that this art was about reacting to spirit and intention, not to action. Hmm. Meaning that the physical punch is a physical punch. That's the action. But the intent or the spirit behind it is what should determine the nature of the response. Right. And if you're just programmed to respond on a conscious, egotistical level, then you're going to respond in only one way. With Nepo, I found that your response was dictated not by you, but by the spirit of the attack, mm -hmm. by the intent, the nature of the, of the offense. And you didn't determine, they determined it. Much like the Buddhist attitude towards the sword. In Buddhism, basically the sword is an instrument contrary to heaven's way. It, it's, a, it's a device for killing and killing goes against heaven's way. However, when the sword is used to protect life with the intent of protecting life or preserving life rather than the intent of taking life, then the sword becomes an instrument in tune with heaven's way, even though in the process of protecting or preserving that life, it takes a life. Mm -hmm. And that seems kind of nitpicky, but the truth of the matter is, it is the intent behind it. Right, right. That's something that you stressed a lot with, uh, with, with me, at least. I mean, I, I think everyone that I trained with over the years that I was training in Los Angeles of um, the intention of the other person and that the intention, you can, you can feel the intention before something even begins. Mm -hmm. But you don't feel it on a conscious level. 
So you were always teaching us that, you know, NIMPO is always defensive. It's never offensive. Exactly. And it's, and it's a matter of, you know, yes, your response is dictated by the intention of the other person and sometimes other circumstances as well. I I don't know if a drunk necessarily taking a swing at you even has much of an intention, depending on how drunk they are. It, it, it depends you know? on how drunk they are. I just use that as a, as a, a very right. simple right. example. Yeah. No, it's a great example, but meaning that, you know, it, I'll, I'll, I'll use an example, actually. I was walking out of my house um, with my bike a couple of weeks ago, you know, and I have these really big, heavy doors that lead onto the street. So I'm pushing the bike out onto the street, and there was somebody crossing right in front that I didn't see coming. So I didn't run into them. I saw them just in time and I stopped the bike and went, whoa, because they kind of surprised me, this guy. And immediately he flips me the finger. And I thought, well, that, what a, wow, what a fast response. Like, yeah. do, you pra- do you practice that? What is that? But at the same time, I'm thinking, what, what an aggressive response to something that, that actually had no intention behind it and was purely an accident. So even a drunk taking a swing is my point is like, you know, that person might just be taking a swing because actually they're like batting a fly and it just happens to sort of be in the direction of your face. And they're too drunk to know that. You still have to, you still have to protect yourself, but you don't necessarily have to crush the other person or teach them a lesson or all that other. Exactly. It's, it's It's a matter of just taking care of that moment or that instance. Uh, if okay. it's just a matter of it's a matter of first not getting hit or not getting hurt mm-hmm. and uh, making it clear to the individual that they don't want to continue. But you can do that. <laughs> you- <laughs> that is the most polite way you have ever said what you normally say, which is crush out. <laughs> you yeah, just want to yeah. make it clear to the individual that they don't want to continue. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, it, it begins to sound very mystical and woo-woo and um, uh, comic book uh, when you start thinking, when you start talking about feeling a person's intention and, and all of this, but everybody does it. Everybody has the capacity to do it and, and people do it and they don't even realize they're, they're doing it. Um, the, the person who's driving a car and just for no reason at all backs off on the accelerator just as somebody cuts in front of them, um, is that a coincidence or is that sensing of somebody's intent to do something? Right. You, it's not on a conscious level. It's a very right. primal level. Right. And the, the thing is that in our training, what we're trying to do is to get back to that recognition of the primal self, the one that has the senses to know something is not right and listening to it. Mm-hmm. Our modern world and our modern society, it's so easy to, to ignore our inner voice. And I don't mean the ones that are telling us to go out and get drunk, but the inner voice <laughs> that is saying that something's not right. Right. Um, it doesn't feel right. And we start to, as soon as we get that feeling, we start to say, oh, that's being ridiculous. You know, I'm that, that. And we find the rationale to not listen to our, that primal self that says, uh-uh, not a good idea, whatever you're thinking. So it's funny that we are actually 
training to get back to, or I shouldn't say get back to, but to awaken and strengthen that inner sense. Hopefully we can develop it to such a degree that we sense it so we're not there. Right, we can leave before it even happens. Exactly. The last time I saw Chad was in 2019 when I visited his dojo in Covington, Louisiana, a small town across the Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans. After training a few hours on the mats and then grabbing some lunch, Sensei drove me back to the Big Easy and took me on a tour of his family's history through the Garden District of New Orleans. He comes from a long line of avid storytellers. In part two, we continue Chad's journey in Nimpo Taijutsu, but we leave the chronology behind and get super martial artsy, because what are senseis for? Be sure to tune in next week for part two of our interview with Sensei Chad Minch. Pretty Deadly Self-Defense is a self-defense program based in Berlin, but with coaches and trainers in a growing number of cities in Europe and around the world. If you want to join us just to take a course or to become a coach, a trainer, or even offer Pretty Deadly in your school or studio, let us know through our website at prettydeadlyselfdefense.com or find us through our app. Just search for Pretty Deadly Self-Defense in your favorite app store and download for free. And remember that all of our paid programs fund our volunteer work. So when you empower yourself, you're actually empowering another woman, too. Thanks for being here. I'm Susie Collick, and you've been listening to the Pretty Deadly Podcast. See you next week.